The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And today, I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Jennifer Harris. She is Director of Marketing Initiatives at the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University, where she conducts research to better understand the extent and impact of children's exposure to food advertising and communicate that information to the health community, parents, and legislators. She has an interesting background in that she has an MBA in marketing from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. She worked at American Express for 11 years as a business executive and as a vice president in marketing. After that, she launched her own marketing firm, and then she went back to school to study social psychology at Yale, where she basically focused her research on the automatic effects of food advertising on snacking behaviors and food preferences among elementary school children and young adults. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you. So I know you or your voice, actually, in your research from a food marketing work group of which I am a member. And I remember you talking about marketing to children and how companies work around every skill parents and teachers can possibly give our children to navigate those messages. And that's really why I wanted you to be my guest. So we'll explore that. But first, let me ask you, how did you become interested or how did you make the shift from being in the business world to focusing on public health? Well, it was kind of a gradual shift. I I was in marketing for many years and I, I love marketing and trying to understand why people do what they do and how to convince them that they should do what you want them to. And I started reading about the psychology of marketing and realized that this was a a fascinating topic and something I wanted to learn more about. So that's why I went back to school to get my PhD in, in social psychology and it wasn't until I arrived at Yale and I met um, Dr. Kelly Brunell, who was the director of the Red Center and who, you know, has been a pioneer on food policy and its relationship to obesity. And he said, well, why don't you take a look at food advertising to children? It's, you know, it's nobody's really studying this. So this was about 10 years ago. And when I started reading the research, uh, that happened, and I realized that it really wasn't related at all to the way that companies market to people. It was, you know, it, it assumed kind of that there was this rational process that, you know, people see an ad and it makes them want the product, and so it made me realize that this was an opportunity. It was an important public health issue, and it was something that nobody else really was studying. So that's sort of how I came into the issue. Well, I have to tell you how I became interested in it. I have two children myself, and they're in their 20s now. But I remember both being a dietitian. I worked at the University of Missouri in Extension, and we were doing work on childhood obesity. And I just had this revelation one day that 
it wasn't so much what we were telling kids to eat, you know, eat more fruits and vegetables, get more exercise. I wasn't being effective. Now, after 20 years of this, and I thought there must be another influence going on here. What is it? And then I started looking at food advertising and marketing myself. And funny, I remember the first time my son went to kindergarten. And remember, he's 29 years old now. So marketing to kids has really changed. But something struck me, and it was a calendar hanging on the kindergarten wall. And it was a Pepsi calendar. And I thought to myself, that's funny. I wonder why Pepsi would have a calendar here. And it's all been one big exploratory trip after that. But I want to know, you know, from calendars in classrooms, now we have curriculum. We have all kinds of screen time directed to kids. Years ago, most of the food advertising was likely spent on television marketing. I know you've looked at this idea of children being exposed to advertising on other kinds of screens. What are the changes you've seen in your career? Well, as you said, the you know, 10 years ago, television was the prominent way that companies mark food companies marketed to kids and it it still is the biggest expenditure, but companies have really found ways to reach kids wherever they are. So this is their objective. They want to they want to become part of the child's life. They want to have their advertising be engaging and interactive and, and something that kids will, will utilize in their, in their daily life. So to do that, they have to be on the internet. They, they have to be in schools. They have to be in the neighborhood when you're walking down the street. They have to be on the t-shirt that you're wearing when you play softball. They have to, um, you know, they they really just want their brand logo, their products to be constantly in front of kids' faces. And now where children are using mobile devices, we're starting to see a lot of apps that are actually games that are advertisements. So wherever companies know that kids are spending their time, that's where you're going to find advertising. So in terms of effectiveness, are there strategic ways that are more effective than others? I know there's there's a lot of focus on developing relationships with children, these brand relationships. Are there some ways, and I know that we've I've read your research about how insidious this is, but are there key components of marketing to kids where where the industry feels they have to be? Well, I, I think they do have to be on, on television. That's, you know, there's no other medium where you can get the emotion and the story value and all, and reach as many people as they do. So on average, children see 13 ads on television every day. There's no other way to reach that many kids that often. But what they also want to do is be, as I said, everywhere else they are. And I think the the thing about advertising that most people don't realize is when you when you think about advertising, you tend to think, well, it's giving you information about a product. It's telling you, here's this product, and then you'll think about it, and you'll decide, well, is this something I want or not? But that's not how advertising works, especially advertising to children. What you really need to do to attract children is just make kids 
entertained and happy and enjoy your advertising. So wherever that is, if you can make it an enjoyable experience for the child, then that enjoyment is going to rub off on the product and actually make them love the product. So in TV, you'll see lots of uh, lots of animation and fun things going on. You know, the, the idea is to just make the advertising fun and then kids will love the product. On the Internet, there are websites that um, are all games involving the product. So in that case, the child is playing the game. They're enjoying the game. The messages about the product are sort of seeping into their brain and making them love that product as well. You know, on uh, product placements, sticking a product in a video game or a television show, that also sort of the, the feeling that you have for the show or the game rubs off on the product. So this is this is really how advertising works. It's not this conscious, rational process. It's an it's a very emotional thing that happens at at a level that most people aren't conscious of. So if we try to inform our children to what's going on and let them know, you know, that company really just wants you to buy their product. They really don't care about you. Let's look at some ways that you can outsmart the ad. Let's ask questions like who owns the ad? Why are they targeting you? Do kids get that? And is it an effective strategy to use with children? Well, I think kids do get it, and, you know, it's interesting because the research shows that over time kids have become more skeptical about advertising, but because of that, because kids are getting savvier, the companies have to find sneakier ways or ways to sort of deactivate those that critical thinking because for that to work, you have to be thinking the child has to be thinking that way when they're watching the ad. And, you know, chances are they're they're just sitting back and, and not thinking much at all, in which case the ad becomes more effective. So that's one reason that the companies have found, you know, so many other ways to sort of distract you, distract kids from the fact that this is an advertisement and, have them focus on it as a game or a or a story or something fun to do, not as an advertisement to make it more effective. So if they're involved, I want to make sure I understand what you're saying. If the children are involved in a game or an activity where they're having fun, that is one of the ways that marketers deactivate those critical thinking skills? Sure, so that when the child's playing a game, they're not thinking this is a an advertisement and I have to make sure that I don't, you know, that it doesn't affect me. But it, it happens on TV too. If you're if you're just watching an ad and not thinking about what it's doing, which is, which I think is what happens most of the time when anyone watches an ad, right? Then then it can be effective. So it's only not effective if you're consciously saying. This is not going to affect me. So do you think media literacy or teaching children critical thinking strategies or skills while they're, while they're involved in media, do you think that is one of the strategies parents and educators have to help children navigate these messages? Well, I think it does, it's not 
a bad thing to know and to be aware of, but I don't think it's the solution. Mm. I don't think it's going to make the advertising less effective because the companies are spending millions and millions of dollars in research to, you know, to deactivate, to figure out how to get around that, Mm -hmm. you know, that skeptical response that kids do have if you, if you show them an ad, you know, if you show someone an ad and say, this is a new product and it's, it's going to taste better than, than the cook, you know, this is a new cookie. It's going to taste better than the cookies you usually eat. Well, that's sort of a very conscious, rational thing. So the child can taste the cookies and say, well, no, I think my other cookie tastes better. But that's not how the advertising, the advertising is trying to make that cookie fun and exciting and, you know, cool. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, they, so they can succeed in doing that. And it's, and it's nothing you can argue against. Mm-hmm. Let me just let our listeners know that we are speaking with Dr. Jennifer Harris. She is Director of Marketing Initiatives at the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University, where she focuses on the effects of advertising on children's behavior, especially with regard to their public health, food, and advertising. So I'm really interested in changes that I've seen over the course of my children's years in school. And so there was that original Pepsi calendar, and then they started getting coupons for if they finished so many books during a set time, they received a Pizza Hut coupon. After my children graduated, there were things going on like McTeacher nights where after working a long day, teachers would then work the counter at McDonald's and schools would then get a percentage of sales. And children were really encouraged to go to these events because it was going to make the school a lot of money. And I I feel that as an educator, as a dietitian, as a parent, I hate to see these things going on because I want children to have internal rewards for finishing a book and not an incentive to go to a fast food restaurant. And At the same time, I know that teachers who have tried to come up against this receive negative feedback from administrators because the schools need the money from those programs. So for those of us who care about children's public health, do you have any suggestions on how to get around these strategies that marketers use? Well, the school is an interesting environment because, you know, where else do kids spend more time in a day (laughs) than in a school? So that's why the companies want to be there. And I think it also, the other issue with marketing in schools is that it gives, you know, you can tell kids that Pepsi isn't a a healthy choice. They can know that. But if you then have a Pepsi calendar in the school, it really endorses that product. It gives the message that, well, maybe health isn't that important or, you know, this sort of implies that the school says this product is is okay. And schools do have the ability to establish rules about what can or cannot be promoted in their schools. And there are a lot of groups that are working on trying to help schools find other ways to raise funds so that they don't need Coca-Cola in their school or you know, other unhealthy products advertising in their schools. So, you know, there are lots of ways to get around it. It's hard when it's this is the way the school has done it for years and years and years. But 
a lot of public health advocates, a lot of parents are really trying to make these changes, and so we expect that to continue and to and to expand because and we hope that when parents start thinking about all of the marketing that's going on in their schools, it will also open their eyes about how much marketing their kids see mm-hmm. everywhere they are. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when I've had discussions about this, one of the responses, of course, is, well, you know, parents have the ultimate say. So it's all, you know, the balls in the parents' court. And the other message I get is that the teachers will say, well, you know, they're going to go out and they're going to eat the fast food anyway. We might as well have it available here as a reward. And I'm not quite sure always how to respond to those comments. What what would you say to those? Well, one comment is that the USDA has now established standards for foods that can be sold in schools outside of the school lunch program. And that was a that was a huge controversy because a lot of the schools were saying, well, you know, if they're not going to buy it here, they're going to they're going to just go to the corner store and buy it. And in Connecticut, they had done this a few years ago and it's and Red Center researchers have looked at it, and that's not what happens. It actually reduces the amount of junk food that kids eat. So the research doesn't show that kids will go buy it somewhere else. They'll buy what's convenient, and if it's healthy food, that's what they're going to buy. So so I think that that argument is not really a valid one. Um, in terms of parents that, you know, kids don't just eat what their parents buy them. Kids eat, you know, what's served in schools. They they eat what's served at friends' house. By the time a lot of children are eight or nine years old, they have their own money and they can stop at the corner store or the or the fast food restaurant on their way home from school. So, you know, parents are responsible for what's served in the house, but that's not the bulk of what the children are eating a lot of days. So, you know, I would say that. Parents should not have the stuff in the house, but but that's not going to stop the kids from eating the unhealthy stuff if they're if they're advertising this, make it making it sound really appealing, and they can buy it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And I think too, a lot of parents who are working multiple jobs and are tired when they get that, I guess it's the pestering factor, as it's been identified, it's very hard to resist because I think at the end of the day, parents want their children to be happy and satisfied and content, and it's so easy for our guard to be broken down. And the marketers also are marketing to parents. So if you look at the sugared cereal aisle or the fruit drink aisle, those those products are covered with claims about vitamin C or vitamin D or low in in fat or all you know all these messages that say that these products that really aren't very healthy are and and that's marketing to the parents and we've done research with parents that show that they really that they think products like vitamin water which is 100% sugar water or Capri Sun which is is 5% juice and the rest sugar. They think these products are healthy. So the marketers are not just marketing to the kids. They're marketing to the parents, too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. I remember in 2006, I believe it was, the Institute of Medicine put out a report, and basically the bottom line was that 
the products that are advertised to children are really, for the most part, they contain ingredients that we advise parents not to feed their children, so high fat, high sugar, high salt, and that they also concluded that advertising or marketing really affected the long-term health of children. And yet, it's been very difficult to get any kind of mandatory legislation that would restrain advertising. And I guess marketers come back with, well, you know, this is a First Amendment issue. We have a right to free speech. And how do you address those kinds of issues when, when on the one hand, yeah, we've got free speech to some extent, but at the other hand, this quote-unquote free speech is harming our children's long-term health? Well, that's kind of a complicated <laughs> question. But after the IOM report came out that you referenced, a, a bunch of federal agencies got together, and they came up with standards that companies could follow. These were voluntary standards that would require foods marketed to children to actually have positive nutritional value. And they proposed these standards. Congress had asked them to do that. They proposed these standards. And the food industry spent so much money combating them that they were never officially issued, even though all of the comments from the public health community, there were thousands of comments from the public health community that were, that were in support of them. So, you know, unfortunately, the same companies that market to children also spend a lot of money lobbying in Washington, which is unfortunate. But what we try to do at the Red Center is to use our research to inform parents about what's happening. Um, because parents do have the voice, they could have the voice to get companies to change what they're doing. And, you know, the companies are absolutely right. If parents didn't buy these products, they wouldn't they wouldn't be marketing them to kids. If parents said to the company, stop marketing these products to my children, the companies would stop. But the problem is that most parents don't know how unhealthy the products are and they don't really think it's harming their kids. So that's where we think that um, it's really important to help educate parents about what's happening with marketing to kids and also to give them ways and suggestions for how they could how they could get companies to stop doing it and that's one reason why we think marketing in schools is an important focus for these efforts because the schools have the authority there's no first amendment issues related to marketing in schools so mm -hmm. they could stop it there to start it seems to me and correct me if i'm wrong that the voluntary, quote-unquote, voluntary efforts have really not been favorable to children. No, what, what's happened with the, with the industry voluntary guidelines on food marketing to children is that they've, they've improved the products a little bit. So, for example, children's cereals used to have 14 grams of sugar in three-quarters of a cup. Now they have... 10 or 11 grams of sugar. You know, it's the, it's the product is still one-third sugar, so it's not a healthy product, but it's better than it used to be. And so this is, this is the industry solution, is to market the same products, just make them 
a little bit less unhealthy. Mm -hmm. I think one successful campaign that I wanted to make sure we spoke about was there are less toys now being sold with fast food meals. Is that correct? Well, there are some. uh, One company, Taco Bell, has decided to remove, to, to stop marketing its kids' meal. There are fewer kids' meal, there are fewer toys being sold with kids' meals because kids are buying fewer kids' meals, but it's not a positive thing in my mind because what they're buying instead is the value mm-hmm. menu items at the fast food restaurant So, because they're cheaper and they're more food. So, you know, kids' meals aren't, a, aren't healthy as a rule, but at least they're low, they tend to be lower calories and have, you know, healthy sides and, and beverage options, and they're better than the, any other item on the, on the fast food menu mm-hmm. for, kids, for kids. I was looking for ways in which parents could be proactive, certainly joining other organizations. I know the Center for Science and the Public Interest is a great one-stop shop for parents to get more information about, you know, action steps. What do you think is one of the most effective ways for parents to be proactive? Is it contacting the companies? Is it contacting legislators? Uh, Is it tweeting and using the Facebook pages that we all have to be social tools for change? How do we use our limited time most effectively? Um, Well, we all, um, the Red Center also has a, um, website called redrootsparents.org and it also has links to not just uh, CSPI petitions but other uh, other sort of options that are out there that, that people can engage in now. So, you know, that it, that I guess kind of joining a national movement like the petition that the Food Marketing Workgroup has to get um, Nickelodeon to stop um, advertising unhealthy products on its on its um, program kids programming is is one way. I think you know as I said before, I think the you know getting involved in in your schools and what's going finding out what's going on there, trying to do something there is a great way to stop other other things going on in your community. You know there's there's efforts to improve the nutrition quality of items offered in corner stores where, you know, kids tend to to visit before and after school, getting rid of, you know, the the Pepsi sponsorship of your of the little league teams. Those kinds of things are all things that you can do in your own community. If parents go out and just see, just look at how at what's happening, what their kids are seeing and pick pick one thing and try to change it. I think that will be the most effective. Well, I want to thank you so much for being my guest, and I want to thank you for the suggestions that you've given us and all of your research to make us just a little bit more savvy when we're dealing with these really critical issues for children's health. For more information about Dr. Jennifer Harris's research at the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale, please go to http colon double slash yaleruddcenter.org. That's Yale. R-U-D-D center.org. 
I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. We've been speaking with Jennifer Harris. She holds a Ph.D. from Yale University. She is Director of Marketing Initiatives at the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale, and her research focuses on the ways in which marketing and advertising affect our children's health. Thank you so much, Dr. Harris, for being my guest. Thank you for having me.